Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute. Fetzer supports a movement of organizations that are applying spiritual solutions to society's toughest problems. Learn more at Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, yes, an extra offering alongside this week's shorter produced show, my full, sprawling, unedited conversation with James Bridle. They are an artist, technologist, and author of the fascinating new book, Ways of Being, Animals, Plants, Machines, The Search for a Planetary Intelligence. Yeah. Hi, James. Oh, hello. Um, Chris, I'm hearing a little echo coming back at me. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's still there. Okay. It's gone. Yay. Um, I'm so glad to meet you, although meeting meeting in this way. Um, it's very nice to hear from you. Thank you for <laughs> the, the nice things you've been writing about the book on your newsletter. And well, chills. yeah, so, um, well, I know, actually, we'll tell, let's, let's go ahead and start and I'll tell you the story. Um, uh, loud and clear, loud and clear. You can take it down a slight notch if you like. That'd be fine. Okay. All right. Yeah, I think it sounds great. Um, yeah, I. Um, you know, my my. I, there was some serendipity in um, in me reading your book and getting to really delve into it the way I did. Um, I mean, obviously, I read a lot for my work, but I was getting ready to go on essentially kind of a sabbatical for eight for 10 weeks. And um, I guess you, the galley is, the copy I have of your book that is completely marked up is, is a galley's copy. And it was sitting there and I was kind of picking up books saying, you know, let's see what's come in that I might take with me as a, as a big read this summer. And uh, I was heading to Patmos, to the island of Patmos. Oh, lovely. And so, and so I saw that you were in, in, in Greece and I, and I thought, oh, that's it. <laughs> It's meant to be. So, um, and it was just fantastic. It was wonderful to read it there. I mean, obviously, it's not it's not in any way narrowly about Greece, but I think reading it in, in that place was um, I don't know. Just it, it was terrific. I read. I you know, sitting out looking out over the Aegean. I I read a chapter a day, and um, and it and you're you know you're um, you're working with so many themes. Um, that have been emerging in all kinds of conversations I'm having, including that term emergence. Um, so yeah, it's so I've been kind of with you. I've been I've been thinking with you and learning from you for a few months now, and it's great to finally speak. Yeah, well, that's lovely to hear. Thank you. I'm glad it's I'm glad it's been of interest, and uh, it certainly sounds like it mirrors a bit some of the sort of synchronicities that went into writing it in the first place, uh, which has been a whole whole train of kind of bits of the universe coming and knocking on my door and saying you should probably pay attention to this thing right now. Yeah, and uh, occasionally <laughs> listening. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, I I would just like to know a little bit about uh, just your you know you 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 were you are you from London? Is that right? Did you grow up in London? Yeah, yeah, I grew up in London. I'm, uh -huh. I'm British from there. Um, and uh, the you in your person and in your work, you bring together um, disciplines that aren't necessarily in a robust conversation: um, art, technology, um, 
I wonder if you know in the in the in the in the world of your childhood and your earliest life did were these fascinations planted in you and were they planted together in some way? I I don't know because it's something that I wonder about when I sort of look back on the various things that I I do and have done in that way of in the way that you quite often only understand what is you're doing when you kind of look back and see what you've done. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't really find that in my childhood. I'll be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, um, I, I think in large chunks, some of those things were missing from my childhood, with the exception of technology, that being the kind of primary thing, um, in that I, you know, I grew up in a, a very urban environment um, and also in boarding schools in the countryside, uh, which are, are terrible things right, and don't yeah. don't make you love the countryside in any way at all. Right. Um, and actually the, 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 main, the main route of that way of my work would, would be the internet, which kind of arrived when I was kind of 12 or 13, so I always say that I, I grew up with the internet mm-hmm. um, and I'm one of that you know that band of people who sort of straddle it a little bit and so have a I think a particular feeling of feeling for technology um, right. which perhaps our, our parents generations will never have and that uh, younger generations will never know because it's always been present so we have this kind of quite odd personal relationship with it I often think and that's what marked a lot of my my earlier work and has, has shaped a lot of my thinking but at the same time I've always had one foot in the arts and in writing uh, and in, in kind of culture more broadly. And I just go where my interests take me, essentially. Mm-hmm. And uh, and this is where they've taken me in the last few years. Yeah. Was there a religious or was there a spiritual background to your childhood? Um, again, I can't particularly say there was. Um, you know, there was the um, fairly standard straight Church of England background <laughs> to everything. In that same boarding school in the um, countryside. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the, all of that all of that stuff is is uh, fairly stereotypical and largely true as a result uh, mm-hmm. and was not particularly marked by it. Um, uh, but it was definitely an interest that I developed as I went on. I always had an interest in, in, the, in the esoteric um, and got quite into kind of strange magical mysteries, mystical stuff, probably mm. in my sort of late teens and so on and so forth. But again, you know, really is something to play with. I didn't, I didn't feel had a strong connection to my actual lived life until much later. But then again, you know, it's, it's part of this process of kind of you only really see a thing when you look back in it. Yeah. Um, I feel that very much about my most recent work. I'm kind of still learning now about stuff that I was writing about a few years ago. Like those things are still taking their time to settle into me and become embodied. And I'm still making sort of new discoveries about things that I thought I understood when I was writing them a while back. But actually, I had to write about them and sit with them for quite a long time before before I understood them even now. Yeah. And then there's also that kind of mystery that the that what you wrote is alive out in the world, having its own separate life, right? Becoming yeah, seeds absolutely. for things that you have no touch points with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I think when your question is about sort of the mystical and the, the outreach and other things being alive, I mean, the, the idea of other things being alive generally is probably one of the strongest themes that run through, run through this book. Yes. The most recent book. Yes. And I, I think that has definitely been a growing awareness. And I, I don't know where it comes from, but it's something that I've, that has been present in my work long before I started looking at other organic beings, let's say. It's, mm-hmm. it's something that I've written about, about the agency and kind of, um, the the living qualities of machines and technologies for a long time in, in what I would now understand as a kind of animistic belief, mm-hmm. a belief that everything is alive in, in some way and has this existence beyond the human. Um, mm. And yeah, I, it, it's weird to look back on the things I was struggling to articulate about technology even sort of 10 years ago that I might articulate in a very different way now having thought about it in, the context, in, a, in a much broader context, in a much broader kind of commonwealth of living things. 
Yeah, that's a phrase of yours that I love. Um, I mean, be- before I really I I want to focus on on the ways of being book and everything that's in there. Um, it's so rich. Uh, and just to note that your last book was um, <laughs> um, the New Dark Age technology and the end of the future. <laughs> so spoiler alert: there's a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, pointing in that title at the fact that it was. Um, you know, it was it was a book that 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 had some um, caution and pessimism um, about it, our lives with technology. Yeah, it's not a cheery book. No, it's not a book I recommend to people <laughs> if they want to feel particularly good about the world. You know, <laughs> so then I'm, but I think that this new book, uh, yeah, just just to what you just said, there's so much in it about um, about life writ large and intelligence writ large. And all we're learning in those directions, and um, you know, in the in the I think in the introduction, you you have um, I'm I'm a I'm a big believer in questions as a form of words, and and the power of questions, and how questions orient us. And there are a couple of questions you have um, that to me felt uh, like kind of operating questions, orienting questions that, and you you could say everything that follows takes off from, but I may be imagining that, but. You know, what future is being imagined here and what intelligence is at work? I mean, were, and I'm, I'm curious, were those questions that you began with or did they emerge as, as, as lenses through which you were seeing what you were exploring what you were seeing? Yeah, I mean, those are definitely kind of foundational questions for the book. And they they do come out of all the work I've, I've been doing previously. Um, you know, you bring up New Dark Age, and that was really an inquiry into kind of what has gone wrong with the technologies that we thought we were building, that were supposed to be, or we were told were going to be, and we naively maybe believed were going to be in some way kind of emancipatory yeah. and community building and knowledge enhancing and all of these lovely ideas. And how that, you know, really hasn't been the, the case. And New Dark Age was an inquiry into how that came to be and, and the state that we're in. And and, and new and um, ways of being is very much a, you know, one way, a very personal way for me out of a fairly dark place that that book took me to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in order to, I felt that in order to kind of reframe this question from being, you know, how did we get to this bad place right. yeah. into like essentially how do we how do we get out of it there's mm-hmm. there's two parts to that i mean the the first part is you know this question of um what future is being envisioned yes. like you know how exactly we frame how we understand really truly what it is that we're building and then how we imagine alternatives mm-hmm. you know a really clear clear-eyed view on exactly where we are in the things that we make and the relationships we have with the world around us. And then, a, you know, a reasonably clear vision of the alternative that might be possible to that. Yeah. Um, or, you know, at the very least, I think, a, a claim that there is an alternative because because so often we take the the situations, the processes, the beliefs we're given as, as, as for granted uh, or the definitions of words that we're told, like intelligence. Yeah. Um, you know, and... and that second question, what intelligence is being envisioned to, is, re- is really a question about the nature of intelligence itself. Yeah. Um, because what I realized was this term intelligence was being used everywhere. Um, uh, and, and people weren't really questioning what that meant. Uh, and we're taking so often um, you know, the definitions that they were given by other people as being, as being definitional, as, as shaping the entire discourse that was possible around that and absolutely shaping 
as a result, you know, what we would, where we would find ourselves in the future. Um, and I realized that by troubling that definition somewhat, um, like other, other futures could be, could be envisioned, could be imagined, or in fact, even other presents. You know, and I, it's, this is just bringing back to me that um, I wasn't sure as I started, as I started into all, all that you're kind of collecting there, that well, t- intelligence didn't feel like a big enough word to me. <laughs> but I think I think what that is about, as you're as you're as you're pointing at, is that we used we in the West uh, that we have used um, and and scientifically and even in in the context of technology have used the word reductively. Um, and you're so this is really also like a, a total reimagining of. Um, of what we mean when we talk about intelligence, and yeah, and I, I, yeah. I mean, I really agree with you that intelligence yeah. is far too small a word for this. Yeah. As I realized quite quickly, you know, I, I set out. I told my publisher I was going to write a book about intelligence, yeah. not really having any idea what that would entail, um, <laughs> and uh, and realized quite quickly that that wasn't really what I was, what what really defined what I was interested in. But you know, this was also began and continues really as a very personal exploration, in that I was very consciously trying to understand something that was new to me to think my way into a whole new area of thought having worked you know almost exclusively in technology for a long time and being in the middle of a process of reframing my practice and my thoughts and my whole way of thinking about the world through a kind of ecological lens and grappling with a whole new personal understanding and the reason that intelligence became the frame is because you know I'd been thinking about these questions of artificial intelligence and so on for yeah. so long and for me they they became a way of thinking into this new subject. And I hope I pass some of that on to the reader, but I, that won't be everyone's starting point either. And as you know from reading it, the, the focus shifts away from intelligence somewhat. Yes, used it well, as and a, certainly as you start in. with artificial intelligence and then it moves in. And I'll, I will say, yeah. So, and, and, the, and one of the larger contexts of also why and how... Um, that language of intelligence became too small. You know, you know, really, I think the story you're telling, and I just want us to start talk about this story. And it, so, when you say options, right? That there are options. We don't. It doesn't have to be this way. Or there are other futures um, that can be imagined. This is all unfolding, right? This is not an, a cerebral intellectual exercise about what could be. You're telling um, a story of our time, kind of multitudinous, interactive story of our time. Um, and, but it's a, it, in some ways, I think, it, it, I think it's probably important to, to kind of put on the table that, that seeing this story and investigating and taking it seriously does also mean getting conscious of, um, really kind of the enlightenment way of thinking and seeing that, that we, all of us, are still so formed by, um, certainly the 20th century was shaped by, kind of 18th, 19th century, which had so much to do with taking things apart and seeing the differences between them and ordering and classifying, and that that as a framework as how the world works. Um, and, and one of the just core um, realities that you then go on to investigate and describe um, is that the closer all in all that we're learning now about how the world works, the closer we examine, this is you, and the more forcefully we interrogate and attempt to classify the world, the more complex and unclassifiable it becomes. And actually that 
science itself in our generation is breaking down those taxonomies and what got reduced. Um, and that's, that's a big piece of the story you're telling. And it's also something that I'm just so fascinated by. And I feel like, I feel like um, amidst all that we have to be discouraged about, uh, realistically, uh, it's one of the most uh, wonderful and um, thrilling and kind of hope-giving aspects of being alive now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you were, when you were speaking there about this, um, this kind of unfolding um, that we are always part of, you know, the the the, the image that's, that sprang to mind for me was was particularly the fact that we we live within these kind of multiple overlapping time frames of understanding. Yeah. Um, by which I mean that, um, like you said, there's there's processes happening within science now that are undoing the work yeah. of previous generations of scientists and the frameworks they built or at least you know if not fully undoing them shaping them into kind of radical new forms mm-hmm. um but just at the point when those frameworks are only really just being understood more widely by the public um or you know by, by any of us who aren't like ourselves at the cutting edge of kind of scientific research yeah you know and at the same time there's there's still you know, even now, this deep divide between the humanities and the sciences, um, which produce, you know, deeply um, uh, differing kind of worldviews and understandings of what's happening. And, um, you know, and the, the, also the huge split you've obviously already alluded to, which is between the kind of dominant Western sciences and, and non-Western, non-dominant kind of understandings of the world. Yeah. Um, and, and all of us live within a um, some different kind of overlapping fraction of those things in some like weird bit of the Venn diagram of understanding between these things that are both different ways of framing the world, but also parts of the same process kind of at different stages. Um, I think to the, the phrase, um, uh, oh, I'm terribly sorry, I'm completely blanking on her name, uh, the evolutionary, uh, Lynn Margulis. Oh Lynn yeah, Margulis yeah, is, which is, <laughs> okay, so, is so one of the, yes, of, and I first heard about her from Robert McFarlane, and that I, you yeah. know, it's one of these names that then comes up everywhere. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so she's important in your, in kind of what you're seeing. Well, I, I just particularly yeah. wanted to just there repeat, yeah. that, repeat that phrase of hers, which is that everything is equally evolved. Mm. Um, that's a really resonant phrase for me that was, was really important in my thinking. Everything um, is equally evolved. Everything is equally evolved. Everything has been, everything has been on this planet for as long as everything else. Everything has been in this universe for as long as everything else. <laughs> Nothing is more evolved than anything else. Everything has been evolving for the same length of time. Mm. Everything has been becoming for the same length of time. So we, while we live inside this unfolding and we live at kind of different levels of it and different levels of understanding and different parts of that process, um, that, that simple scientific but also you know, deeply, um, uh, I don't want to use this word spiritual, just mean like the d- a deep quality of being mm-hmm. in this universe is that everything is part of that unfolding process that is still going on and that is still one of learning. And that immediately destroys any idea of kind of hierarchy or division for me uh, that might shape or inform that kind of splitting and clumping that's been the last century's scientific legacy and that we are finally getting rid of. Um, yeah, and I, so, and kind of even just back to that idea of intelligence being too small. I mean, one of the, I mean, I think Lynn Margulis and Monica Galliano, somebody else you you write about, or Robin Wall Kimmerer, um, who I've interviewed, um, 
one of the things we're learning is that these decisions we'd made about what was intelligent and what was not and our superior human intelligence over against all other intelligence is just being radically um, opened up, right? I mean, I think Robin Wall Kimmerer said to me, I, I can't think of a single, single scientific study in the last few decades that has demonstrated that plants or animals are dumber than we think. It's always the opposite. <laughs> we keep revealing the fact that all kinds of creatures have a capacity to learn, to have memory, and that we're at the edge of this wonderful evolution in really understanding the sentience of other beings. And that, I mean, that's another way of, of, of stating Richardson's paradox, right? Which is what, what, you, what you mentioned earlier. Yes, this, so I this, wanted you to, to talk you about Lewis Fry Richardson. I wanted oh, to ask, actually ask you to... I'm very happy to. Yeah, that's, yeah go on. Okay. Um, well, I mean, I first, I first got deeply into Richardson's work um, because he was one way of understanding for me actually what happened with technology in the 20th century in that um, he was a meteorologist who um, was doing a bunch of kind of meteorology work before the First World War. Um, and then when the war started, um, because he was a Quaker, uh, he you know, was a um, conscientious objector, so he became an ambulance driver in the First World War uh, in a regiment with a whole bunch of interesting people, the Friends, uh, also included like the science fiction writer Olaf Stapleton and various mm. other people. Um, and... and during the war, with pencil and paper, he did some of the first mathematical calculations of what would become contemporary meteorology. So he was the first person to figure out, or the first person to actively do, the like mathematical calculation of the weather, i.e. to predict the weather using maths. Um, and you know, he believed that this was very powerful, but at the time there weren't computers to do it, so he thought it was a kind of interesting mathematical exercise. Um, but what he did was he broke the whole world down into lots of tiny little squares, each of which contained like an exact reading of the temperature, humidity, and other things at that point, and then used essentially an algorithm to process those numbers forward in order to predict the future. And it wasn't kind of 50, 60 years later that computers were capable of doing that um, at the speed that actually you know, that, that was faster than the weather itself. And it actually became a prediction. Um, and that's how we have modern, we modern weather forecasting. But it's also kind of how we have, how we have all modern computation. Hmm. Because it is, again, this thing of taking the world, breaking it down into smaller and smaller pieces and studying them as kind of individual, separate, disparate atoms um, in order to control them and to turn them into a kind of simulation of themselves, uh, which is kind of how I ended up viewing technology. Um, but Richardson kind of stayed interesting throughout his life um, because as a pacifist, you know, he um, uh, as, as a Quaker, um, he kept doing these kind of weird, interesting pacifist things, like writing several books in which he tried to establish the uh, uh, a mathematical basis for um, uh, for for pacifism. Oh uh, right, and, and was it? Didn't he try to calculate why why if it was more if the distance of borders or something had more. That made was war it. more likely or something. Yeah, that was his, that was his idea. He basically uh -huh. thought that um, the 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 likelihood of two countries going to war was like a function of their the length of their shared borders. Mm -hmm. And so, in order to prove this, you know, scientifically, he had to find the length of all those shared borders. And he wrote to all these countries and looked it up in kind of almanacs and went through the British Library and all these kind of things. And he discovered that all the lengths were different, and no one knew the lengths of their countries at all. Right. And as a mathematician, this really bothered him. So he started trying to work, figure out why everyone was measuring the lengths of their country you know their borders wrong and he discovered that it is kind of impossible to like measure the length of a border 
because if you use a meter, uh, a ruler that's a kilometer long, you'll miss out on all the kind of squiggles along that route. If you, you know, and if you use a, a ruler that's a meter long, you'll miss out on all the tiny little kind of divots in the coastline uh, that are within that meter. If you think of the kind of you know mm. wavy line of a beach, mm. and what we discovered is the smaller the ruler you use, the longer the border gets. Uh, and what he discovered, uh, kind of 20, 30 years before Benoit Mandelbrot uh, described them, was fractals. Yes. These things that become more complex the deeper you look at and them. And Mandelbrot was, I guess, that, that science or that, that, that equation came out of Lewis Fry Richardson's work or was inspired yeah, by it. I yeah, didn't realize yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he'd seen Richardson's work and yeah. thought there was something in that. Yeah. Um, and that, that's one of the kind of, for me... I, I can't speak to its scientific value, though I know it's kind of referenced and all kind of way. But for me, it's one of just the, the greatest realizations. Um, one, one, the more that you, you know, on one way, it's a, it's a way of kind of resisting these kind of totalizing hierarchies by saying that, you know, if you look at something more deeply, uh, it's going to become more complex and you can't, nothing's ever that simple. But also, nothing is ever that simple. And that's wonderful and exciting. And it makes everything really, really fascinating and interesting because yeah. there is always more to discover if you pay more attention. Yeah, here's the way you, you wrote about um, Lewis Fry Richardson's paradox. You said, instead of resolving into order and clarity, every closer examination reveals only more and more splendid detail and variation, which struck me as, as a statement about life <laughs> as well as the measuring of a border. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, I think, I think it's a reference to something that got excised from the final book, which is mm-hmm. that I think early on in the book I had written about um, um, Aldous Huxley's uh, trip in uh, The Doors of Perception when he discovers a world of infinite complexity within the folds of his trousers, uh, which is a moment uh, that I've always adored. And I think that's what I was <laughs> consciously or unconsciously referencing in that moment. Wait, um, tell me this out. What is that? Oh, it's um, in Aldous Huxley's Doors yeah. of Perception when he takes mescaline for the first time in his garden in California and he spends uh, quite a long time talking about the... Um, the infinite complexity of the folds in his oh, in his okay. trousers, <laughs> right. uh, and it's this kind of moment of wonderful kind of banality, but also mm. wonder right. um, that that you know literally for him for him doors were opened, and yeah. Huxley has always been a another really strong touchstone of mine. Um, actually, I want to come back to Lynn Margulis um, because you also um, y- 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 her work also. Uh, you know, illuminates these things we're talking about in in in, in other ways. Um, one of the things she said was that life did not take over the world by combat, uh, but by networking. Um, so, I mean, one of as you said, one of the one of some of the science that's being undone is at least simplistic descriptions of um, evolution and survival of the fittest. Right? That's a very very simplistic and you know so so for her to say it did not take over the world by combat but by networking and i would you talk about this idea of endosymbiosis um which also I mean, is a new way of seeing vitality and even ourselves yeah i mean with the with the very strong caveat that i'm not an evolutionary biologist i probably may get huge numbers of facts about this wrong in explaining it uh, which i tried to research much much harder for the book but i'm yeah. just talking now um but endo endosymbiosis is the is uh, margulis's framework for understanding how complex cells i.e., the cells that make up our body and, and all other um living organisms how they how they first emerged um and Endosymbiosis is the 
well, symbiosis itself is the is the process of two things coming or working together. Um, endosymbiosis is the kind of uh, the absorption of one by the other. And um, Margulis's theory, that's pretty strongly supported these days, um, is that the you know the complexity of the of, for example, the animal cell is is an endosymbiosis of of what used to be multiple smaller organisms. Mm. So that the nucleus and the um, other kind of organelles within the cell have gradually kind of accreted into one organism. But in fact, the cell itself is, you know, at that level, at the level of the individual cell, a tiny community of different organisms that millions and millions of years ago decided to cooperate and work together within one like tiny community. And then they built up into larger and larger and larger communities. And that everything, in fact, has been built out of these kind of communities of organisms working together. And that scales all the way up, you know, to the to the human body that, you know, as yes. we're more and more aware of, is now this kind of like walking assemblage of beings. Uh, we carry around, you know, this kind of two, two and a half kilos or whatever it is of other creatures within our bodies, in our gut and on our skin. Yeah. Um, and that, that to even speak of, to speak of ourselves as individuals, at, scientifically, is starting to prove like harder and harder. Yes. As scientists make kind of really extraordinary discoveries about things like the fact that, you know, our intelligence to use that word as it is measured by science is highly dependent upon the health of the creatures in our guts yes we have a symbiotic relationship with our guts that isn't just about digesting food but is also about how we think how we fend off disease about all these other things we are we are communities in of ourselves yes Oh, it's so fascinating. Also, that aren't we by some by some measures where we have it, there may be more microbial cells in a human body than human cells. To, so to even say that we are, I mean, fully again, I, to, to even yeah, we increasingly find it difficult to to draw these distinctions. I yeah. think, but uh, I, I remember you know when I first learned that you know that this. Um, well, the, the two of the two of the facts I think that, that most kind of blew my mind. Reading this, one of which is that it seems likely that that. Um, that the atom of the cell originally came from um, the closest living, free living relative to the the cell in the center of our of our cells today is 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 the typhus bacillus, um, <laughs> something that we kind of fear as a um, as a, a sort of destroyer of life is also our kind of great 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 million times grandmother um, wow. uh, at the center of our cells, um, and also that. Um, that even things that have been incorporated into our into our actual DNA, into our written instructions, have come from the outside. That something like th- some thirty, forty percent of the human genome hasn't evolved as we you know understand it in our kind of very, most of our basic understanding of science, but has actually been kind of written into it by viruses, um, yeah. including the including most of our reproductive system, and including particularly the placenta, um, the mammalian placenta was was written into the DNA of, of animals multiple times, billions of years ago, by other viruses coming from outside the mammalian line. So in all of these ways, we're just products of our environment, in a, in a, not just in a kind of sociological sense, but in a very, very deep, fleshly, embodied sense yes. that we are this coming together of so much life. Here's, a, here's another um, couple of sentences from, from you that I, I really love. Life is soupy. Mixed up and tumultuous, muddying the waters is precisely the point, because it's from such nutritious streams that life grows. <laughs> you know, the, another place this um, 
this takes my mind. And, and of course, we have to, you know, of course, these are great leaps of thought and, and, um, but, and yet there, there are, there is resonance. There are echoes, for example, and you do touch a little bit on physics. Um, you know, I think about Carlo Rovelli talking about how, I mean, essentially what we're in physics is learning is, you know, an electron is only really exists at, in, as it, as it is interacting <laughs> with something else, which is like, which is a kind of, you know, corollary in physics to what you're talking about in the in the biophysical sphere. Yeah, I mean, one of the, one of the one of the people who I've learned the most from is um, Karen Barad, mm-hmm. um, who's a, you know, both a quantum physicist and a, and a feminist theorist, and a, just a quite extraordinary thinker, and also a poet and speaker, um, and the person who's probably given the most powerful demonstration of quantum physics I've ever experienced in that I you know I was lucky enough to be present in one of her lectures when she explained quantum physics to the audience which is a hard thing yes. to do because uh, very few of us understand it and I certainly don't and she's probably one of the very small number of people on this planet who do but more than that is capable of explaining it to an audience but it was this extraordinary experience of her explaining it and telling these stories of its history and also crucially of its implications this not just being a kind of abstract science but something that actually affects our daily lives but also our ethics and how we live our lives um uh that that was a kind of was an experience was a becoming between us as she spoke as i said as a as a poet um as a communicator who made a subject and an understanding alive in our common presence and the moment she stopped speaking I sort of understood it less um, (laughs) because it was a product of very specifically that shared experience. And it's one of the most profound experiences I've ever had. I always talk about that encounter as being absolutely Mm life-changing in a very deep and meaningful way because, you know, I understood something about about a lot, but just just about the nature of quantum physics, as you're saying, as something that only exists in this moment of observation, of awareness, of what Barad calls intraaction. Intraaction, um, yes. You know, so this, again, this process yeah. of becoming of an encounter yeah. that is true of quantum physics, but it was also mm-hmm. true of this relationship that we had with the audience and her in that encounter. Mm. Mm. I, um, I, I was also really fascinated by um, your description of Pando, which seems to me that was just a single clonal aspen, um, one of the largest and oldest individuals on Earth, and yet defying again the notion of an individual. Um, would you kind of talk about it? Just because I wonder if something like like Pando is also something that we literally could not see um, before we had some of these lenses on that you and I have been talking about. Yeah, I mean, Pandal is such a beautiful example of, of exactly that. So Pandal is a Pandal is a clonal aspen, um, and in fact, if I understand this right, all uh, aspens of Pando's genus, um, though of course you know we're against that kind of splitting, um, uh, are are clonal in the sense that they they grow from a common mycorrhizal root. So our idea of the tree, you know, is our idea of a tree is something that is above ground, that is the trunk and the crown. Because that is what we see. Mm-hmm. Um, what we have failed to see, most of us have failed to see for most of time, is the, uh, their connections underground. And, and in the case of, of Pando, these connections are very explicit. And in the fact that there is one single root system that underlies um, tens of thousands of what we see as trees. Um, so what we see at ground level is a forest of aspen trees. Um, 
but those that forest is one single organism um or, and each tree is in fact a shoot of a common uh one single root system so they all share the the same dna they are in fact one organism um and and this this was you know this was not recognized this was not seen until the kind of 1950s or 1960s um and is for me a brilliant example of this kind of complete reframing of um uh you know of of what constitutes an organism um but also of that's such a clear you know illustration of of the narrowness of what we see mm-hmm. um you know and um and extends well into not just into a kind of huge clonal organism like like pando who is yeah possibly one of the largest heaviest oldest creatures of any kind on it earth says, so there's a, a lot of really interesting competition in that area yeah. yeah um but you know also gets us into the 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 much more complex uh symbioses that are happening in in all forests between trees and fungi and the communication that's been happening between them that we're only kind of just learning about yeah but that we have you know really been blind to most of us again within the you know dominant traditions etc um uh for, for for so very long um you know we we are we're shaped by by what we can perceive mm-hmm. and what we can perceive is is shaped by you know both by our kind of the tools that we have to hand our physiognomy but also our imaginations uh, and the culture in which we exist um and it but it doesn't take much pushing on those things to to change those perceptions i think in really interesting ways yeah and and as we touched on when we began speaking you know we're talking about um a lot of disciplines that are themselves unfolding and also unfolding in conversation with each other and um and 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 you you've been in, on this kind of sweeping investigation and where your work and your entry point is distinct and i think builds on others is that you come at all of this from the perspective of a fascination and engagement with our lives with technology um and i was very struck by this story you told about Walking with Suzanne Samard in a redwood forest outside Vancouver. Suzanne's also been on the show and and taking in uh, a kind of kinship with the internet. Um, and I wonder if that was also um, a moment for you that was that was important. I mean, incredibly important. Yeah, I mean, if you, as you know from the book, the series of encounters I've been lucky enough to have with people who've changed my life. And, you know, we've mentioned several of them, John Brad and Susan Simmer being two very, very key ones. Um, um, but, I mean, you know, that's a, it's, a, it's a very good example in, in, in that sense because, uh, you know, when I, when I first heard those stories from Suzanne Simard about the nature of, of life underground, I immediately made this kind of, you know, connection to the networks that I was more familiar with, the networks of the internet. And I, I just thought that was interesting. Um, and it took me a long time to understand its kind of full significance. Um, and you were thinking about uh, the mycorrhizae, the kind of underground <laughs> networks, nodes, and life, right? Energy. Yeah, flow. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there, there was... It was, it was it was a, one of the key moments, I think, kind of, yeah, an awakening for me in which, you know, a previous silence was essentially broken. Or I mm. sort of took the, took the earmuffs off or whatever it is, and suddenly everything broke into song. And, and <laughs> just by a very small shift in awareness, um, the world starts to speak mm. in a way that it, the way that it, you know, really hadn't before. Um, not necessarily immediately. 
but just by letting those kind of various encounters sit with you yeah. for some time. As I said, they're, they're ones that I'm still very much having um, as a result of writing the book and kind of, you know, allowing this stuff to to sink into into one. Um, uh, it took me it took me a long time to to assimilate as much as I have now. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the point, isn't it? It's ongoing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm still assimilating that experience of of walking in the woods uh, with Dr. Simard. Um, and I probably always will be, as we will always be assimilating all these experiences. But they they accrue meaning as as they you know as they meet other realizations, and uh, and discovering indeed, as I think maybe you were pointing out, that there was this deep relationship between our coming to understand the mycorrhizal networks and our construction of you know um, technological networks of the internet. You know, I, it was necessary for me to make that connection. Um, that story being, if if you want me to briefly, yeah, yeah, outline please, it, yeah, um, is that um, you know these these there is a, there is a very definite connection between these two things in that the first researchers to recognise and start to map out these mycorrhizal networks in the kind of nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties were also some of the first people to be connected to the nascent internet because they worked within. Um, kind of national research institutes and universities, which were the first places to be connected to the internet. So they were some of the first people to build mental models of networks in the way that we currently understand them. And, um, uh, you know, the, the development of the internet also led to not just these new kind of metaphors of interconnected nodes um, of the network as we come to understand it, but also methods of analysis. So hmm. beginning in the 1980s, people studying the internet developed a whole new kind of form of mathematics called um, uh, network theory, uh, topological studies of how complex networks interacted that there simply wasn't a mathematical description for before. But people realised almost immediately they could apply to these mycorrhizal networks and they became another way of seeing and understanding them even more deeply. And what I, what I really understood from that was that, you know, as humans, we are, we're not that great really paying attention to things outside our own minds, perceptions, immediate experiences and the things that have happened to us. Um, we quite often seem, and I don't fully understand this process, but I see it happening all the time, we seem to need to build these kind of internal models of of the world um, uh, in our own little toy-like creations in order to see the things outside us. And that seemed mm. to be what happened with mm. this kind of development. We didn't develop the internet in order to understand the trees. There's something more interesting, complex going on there. But they happened. That's that's how it worked. We had to build our own little networks before we saw the networks that already exist in the world. Just as it seems, it feels to me, as I describe in the book, we need to build our own models of intelligence, however we can pour in artificial intelligence, in order to see the intelligences that have been around us all along. Maybe mm. that's why we're doing the AI, pushing us towards it. And maybe, I'm just thinking this now, yeah. this is probably incredibly naive of me, because of course that's what we always do. We have to make these kind of stories about what the world might look like in order to map that back onto the world again and kind of make those things true, essentially, to figure out our kind of path towards them. So maybe that's what AI and uh, network theory actually are. They're just, uh, they're just new stories about the world that make that kind of world accessible to us properly again. Yeah, and I, I think our, our brains are working so hard to create order out of chaos, right? So that we're not completely overwhelmed <laughs> by everything, but it also means that we're limited in what we see. I mean, also, I'm just thinking in this connection, um, but and yet, so, and this, as there are advances, like the ones we're talking about, of seeing more, seeing more of reality, and it also 
makes sense to us, um, then then hopefully that means that collectively our brains can start to see different, right? To, 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 yes, starting with this idea of yours, you know, how does the world work, that we start to have a different sensibility about that. Um, yeah, I think as long as we do, as long as we also manage to maintain a uh, uh, an awareness, an ability to comprehend or at least live with like the unknown and the unknowable, I think, because it's, it's this fascinating, endless back and forth balance between wanting to make sense of the world, yeah. you know, and trying to understand it. And, and as you said, reduce this noise, reduce this complexity so that we can kind of live meaningfully within it. Yeah. While at the same time, there's, there's always something potentially destructive in that, as we've seen in the kind of history of science, this kind of, a, you know, attempting to frame everything within a particular theory. So it, so it, it collapses again. And I think there's so, something so fascinating in that tension because that's where we always live. Like wanting to make sense of it, but not wanting to reduce the world to such extent that it stops being kind of interesting or or like itself anymore. And that's true, I think, as well. Of you know, I was I was struck by that when lucky enough to talk to like really advanced, good science scientists. Is that you know, like we've been saying throughout this, well, well, so much of the history of science has been about kind of reducing the complexity of these things and, yeah. and erasing doubt to some extent. You know, scientists and and you know. In, in, in the dominant tradition are also a lot of them some of the most the, the people most comfortable living with doubt yes that most of us are so bad at living with yes. because that's where they live all the time really on the edge of understanding stuff and they know they know more than anywhere else that there's you know there's huge limits to what we can know about the world and so that's a that's a that's something i think we can learn from, they, they have from a delight a in the unknown you know i also think about how I think about how we learn as human beings. I mean, literally from childhood to adulthood, right? I mean, there is something that children do of kind of taking things apart in the first place and then putting them back together. I mean, I can almost see this 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 evolution, this unfolding of science in that way, you know? And for the Enlightenment, we had to we had to see the divisions, we had to see the separateness, we had to give things names, we thought, we felt. And now there's this kind of understanding <laughs> of how it all works together. Um, I mean, I was even thinking with the brain. You know, I remember, I think Suzanne Samar told me that these fungal, these micro, I can't get this, mycorrhizal networks. Yeah, so you were, you were seeing that they, that they resemble literally um, and figuratively this planet-spanning network of cables and wires and electromagnetic electromagnetic signals and microprocessors and data centers of the internet and i think also she says there's 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 incredible correlation and resemblance to the to neural networks in the human brain there's something about there's so much to wonder about in this which i think is a move that opens us also yeah and i mean i just want to respond to something you just said as well that i I want to push back slightly on the mm-hmm. idea that it was necessary for us to take things apart before we put them together because of the intense violence that was done during that period and yes. its connections to imperialism and colonialism and much else. That I, It may be the case, but I hope it's not, and I just wanted mm-hmm. to say that. Well, yeah, I don't um, think the taking apart had to be violent. Yeah. Or, yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, no, no, those... those, um, those, those um, Reflections, I think, is what they are because they're not the same thing. I mean, I, th- I think it's really important to note that, like, you know, the the internet, the mycorrhizal networks are not like the internet. The internet is not like the mycorrhizal networks. They function in, in fundamentally different ways. The, you know, the mycorrhizal cords are, are, you know, also 
sensing organs. They're not mere transmitters of information. Plants are not just servers. These kind of, you know, there's limits to these things. Yeah, yeah. But there are echoes of them in everything, yes. I think. Um, and that's that's a really powerful thing that speaks, I think, to this kind of, not just the fractal nature um, of the universe, but it's kind of holographic nature, that it, mm. that it reflects itself mm. at every level, that speaks to a... Um, to a, a kind of discordant unity, you know, a kind of yearning to mm. be like each different parts, even though things are things may be different, that things can't all, you know, be mapped exactly one to one on on each other. There's a kind of innate sympathy there, I think, that strikes me, um, and that is something that yeah, one one always kind of discovers. It's the it's always the work of kind of syncretism. Um, I'm thinking whether it's kind of you know, religious syncretism or it's whether you're kind of Gödel Escher Bach type kind of like reverberations through space time. Um, uh, that you see these kind of recurring patterns that occur, you know, that recur, I should yeah. say, within things. And yeah, and and it's um, it's the pleasure of of kind of cross or interdisciplinarity that one gets to encounter that, you know, kind of frequently when you when you get to ro- roam across different um, disciplines like some of us do. Yeah, you. Um you work with this language of um, the more than human world. Um, this is more language of you, the broad commonwealth, and you said that a lot ago, of the non-human life with which we are inextricably entangled and suffused by, and these are our companions on the great adventure of time and becoming. I know that that phrase was originally coined by the philosopher David Abram. I I wonder if, if he was speaking um, more in terms of um, more than human in terms of the natural world. I know for you, it's then it's 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 animals and plants and it's machines. Is that right? It's animals, plants, machines, but it might also be kind of ecosystems and inorganic mm-hmm. life as well, and and mm-hmm. much else. I mean, I, I love the phrase. I, I find myself using it less and less because I still want something that doesn't have the word human in it right. to talk about what I'm talking about. Yeah. The beauty of the phrase is it, is it kind of points towards the non-human without negating the human that reminds us that our perception of the non-human is always rooted in the human, but that the human is not necessarily at the centre of everything. Yeah. So it is a really good phrase for that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I guess I do yearn for something that really is a, is a way of talking about agential life, life that is, that is up to something that's bubbling around and doing stuff and that we can meet and have conversations with. Um, that uh yeah i'm just i'm just always looking for that yeah. well, I, I guess maybe what i'm doing more now is actually looking to have those conversations uh, i think i think that's really the the thing that has to follow um you know a lot of the where, where i go in in the book is towards you know uh ways of not just ways of thinking ways of being but actually ways, ways of living with meaningfully um you know and and an injustice um and in peace with with other beings uh, and that that really requires like a a very direct engagement with them um and and meaningfully you know actually talking to other creatures other beings uh and so yeah how how we do that how we address them how we think of ourselves and others and the relationships that we might have that's that's more than maybe just words um it's the um or at least they're words that will only emerge from those conversations rather than ones that we kind of make up to try and frame them is maybe how I'd put it yeah, and, and I, I think one of the things I loved most uh, about your writing, and and this is also this is also a, a, fas- a fascination of mine, is 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 the importance of language in 
walking that path, right? And I mean, I, my understanding was, I think from you, that for him, this this phrase, the more than human world, was was in the first instance about um, that that language itself is is a way that we reorient. Um, and um, but I think, and I think some of the things that I just so love about what you have investigated and is is how language itself in ways we rarely pause to consider is is this reminder that we've carried with us all these <laughs> millennia of the fact that we are part of that we are of the the world um of in of the natural world not in it um i i love to talk about some of that i mean the the move so onomatopoeia, which I think is something, you know, one learns in school, but how that is reminding us where we got sound from and what our, what our, right, where we learned language. Um, yeah, so, so what I talk about in the book is these various kind of theories of, of language origin. And yeah. I draw heavily on, on David Abrams, he mentioned particularly his book, The Spell of the Sensuous, in which he talks about, um, uh, you know, the body's relationship to the world, that we're only capable of, of making the sounds we make by drawing them into our bodies mm. and that the, the sound of language itself is, is you know, shaped by the armature of our kind of muscles and rib cages and the structure of our throats um, or the fact that our, our actual writing systems still contain these elements of the natural world. Yes. Uh, you know, he, he talks about the kind of the very early scripts um, kind of uh, Syriac pre-Egyptian pictographs that were mostly kind of essentially pictures of animals. You know, the the A that became the the Aleph or the Aleph that became the A was originally a bull's head. Uh, the 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 uh, yes. quoth, uh, quoth that became Q is a is a monkey tail. You know, these things they're still we're basically still drawing tiny pictures of animals, even though the the words we make have kind of lost all their reference to the natural world, um, and. Um, there, there is something. I, yeah, I go back and forth on this because in the book I tell several stories about extraordinary relationships that people do have with animals through language. Mm-hmm. Uh, the animals do have languages. That's that's true. Um, and it, uh, more and more that we're discovering all the time, some of them have kind of really incredible complexity. Um, that there are shared languages between humans and. Um, People, um, I, 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 it's very funny to me at the moment that there's quite a lot of money being spent by large tech corporations to persuade people to get to to figure out some kind of magic AI way of getting humans to talk to animals. When if you go and meet anyone who works with animals, they talk to animals all the time. Right. And there's so many <laughs> documented times of people communicating in yeah. these ways. It's it's really quite mind boggling. Yeah. Um, um, uh, but also it's it's really important to remember that language has always been kind of weaponized against animals um, mm-hmm. in particular, but against, against all non-humans essentially, yeah. because it's one of the things we've used historically to um, define ourselves against all other animals, to say that humans are u- unique and special because yeah. we have language. That's yeah. been one of the absolute go-tos throughout the history of philosophy um, uh, to, to make humankind special. Um, and I think it's, you know, as I said, it's worth pointing out that animals have all these kind of languages. But I increasingly think it's dangerous to base everything on language as well, that we need to think of, you know, other other ways of communicating, other ways of understanding one another that are not purely based on language, which, of course, is a very dangerous thing for a writer to say, because I'll put myself out of business. Yeah, well, um, yeah, well but, it's, because it's because it's powerful, as you say, and that power can 
can can go in different directions. I mean, I just say for when I was reading you, just I I started to feel this move from as you said pictographic language, which made clear this belonging, right, um, and origins, um, uh, to the phonetic alphabet, which really was a form of estrangement um, for human beings. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is this is this uh, how Abrams tells the story very very well. Is that um, you know once the pic- pictograms describe the world as it actually is. If you draw a picture of a thing, you're referring to that actual thing. Yeah. And slowly, even though those pictograms came to represent, you know, by 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 ancient Egyptian times, pictograms they start to re- represent concepts more than things. Um, uh, but they are still rooted very much in pictures of actual things. Yeah. Once um, once the script becomes kind of Latinized. Um, uh, you know, it actually refers to the sound of language. That the letters are not things themselves; they're yeah. they're ways of pronouncing words that mean other things. So that the whole language, which is also how most of us think, but not all of us, crucially, mm-hmm. um, starts to starts to kind of remove itself and become something that refers only to itself and only to the human. And so it takes this kind of immense effort. All this invention of words that we've been talking about, the more than human and all this really convoluted ways we have of trying to express ourselves because we're kind of fighting this kind of prison of language that we're stuck within that is constantly trying to separate us from the world. I mean, it's, yeah. it's no accident that all the great kind of religious spiritual traditions teach kind of silence and awareness and clearing one's mind and trying to get away from this constant process of language, yeah. which is a constant process of estrangement. In the space it's a con- the constant letters. separation yeah. of oneself from the world. Yeah. Um, and you can do magic and wonderful things with it, of course. Um, but there's also, you know, I, for me, the heart of it is always this kind of apophatic tradition, this tradition of pointing towards that which is unspeakable um, and unsayable because it cannot exist within language. Yeah. Because language, as we understand it, is something unique to humans. And the truth of the universe is not unique to humans. So it cannot be expressible in language. I do think that's also a wisdom of spiritual traditions that understanding the limits, the limits of language. Um, I, I, I mean, one, one that was so fascinating to me is um, the letter M. This is so stunning. Um, and you kind of, ha- you know, when you're talk- we're talking about the pictographic to the phonetic, that the letter M, our letter M is derived from the Semitic letter Mem, the Hebrew word for water, Mem, was drawn as a little wave so that M, that M is, and I mean, you can still see that. You can see it as yeah. a wave if you, yeah. if you, if you, um, if you see it. If, if that, if that is presented to you, that that's what it is. Then I see this letter that I use all the time completely differently. Yeah, the the M is a wave, and the O is an eye, as in the eye, the Oculus. Yeah, the the Q is the monkey, the A is the bull. Like they're there, they're just living, yeah. just dancing around in the things that we're trying to write and say right in front of us. And we're using them for all these kind of complex, like, you know, um, yeah, abstract ideas. And they're kind of just sitting there winking at us the whole time. Yeah, reminding us who we are. <laughs> yeah. um, and then you make me so aware that we call, we name, we are still naming things out of this primal place in ourselves, right? The World Wide Web or the cloud, the cloud, Right. Yeah, it sneaks up in all these funny ways, doesn't it? Because we have no way of describing things other than the way the world has, has, has taught us to. You know, yeah. as the 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 languages, the theories of some of the older theories of the languages that I talk about. You know, I, I'm not going to remember them all unless you have the book in front of you, which I don't. Um, but these these theories that were put together for the origin of language in um, 
uh, in the 19th century, which were kind of, um, uh, what is it? It's like hoo-ha theory and, and uh, bow-wow theory and, and these different ideas that language evolved from like the grunts that we made when we were exerting ourselves or mm -hmm. the noises that animals made or, you know, or um, uh, the very serious proposition that's been put forward by a number of anthropologists that we you know first made noises in order to call dogs um but that was actually <laughs> yeah. something that that, that pre-existed the form of language mm. um but ne made us need to call so maybe the first the first people we spoke to were actually non-humans um uh that there's there's always been this uh the, the the language has always been a kind of calling out to the world and the and the 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 world is always kind of speaking back to us, as you say, through language, even when we're talking about the most the most high tech things imaginable, like the web and the cloud, because because those are those are the things we have to think with. Those are the things that originally taught us to think at all. Yeah. You know, coming back to being in Greece, where you, where you live now um, and where I was when I read this book, um, I I had this. This, this sensation there that um, that that the mythology it is practically like a natural element, right? It almost felt like it's in the air and it's in the ocean and it's um, in the soil. And you tell this um, amazing story about, and of course, myth mythology. Somebody said the other day, I, you know, mythology is what is more than true. Or I, I like the definition of um, a myth is not something. Um, that never happened. It's something that happens over and over and over again. But you had this amazing story about nymphs, the order of the naming of a chain of islands in mythology. Yeah. Um, so that, so that as we've been talking about, like Indeed. language carries truths that science catches up with and or we catch up with, and it feels like there's a similar thing to say about mythology in this story. Yeah, absolutely. So that, that story is... Um, is told partly in geology, which is that 14,000 years ago at the end of the last ice age, the Saronic Gulf, which is the kind of large body of water which c connects Athens to the main Mediterranean, uh, the Mediterranean was much lower. And uh, the islands that now poke out of that gulf, one of which I live on, um, formed a kind of land bridge um, separating the sea into a series of lakes. Uh, and then over the subsequently few thousand years, the, the levels of the Mediterranean rose, and, the, and that land bridge became a series of islands. Um, but as has been pointed out by what some people call geomythologists, which is just a wondrous term, um, is that if you look at some of the sources uh, in, in ancient mythology, like Hesiod in his Theogony, which kind of tells the long story of how all the gods came to be, um, you'll find that um, these islands are named after nymphs, and the order in which they were sired, the, the order of their birth from, um, in this case, someone who's known as King Asipos, which is the name of the major river that used to flow out near Athens, um, the, the order of the birth of those nymphs corresponds to the order with which these islands uh, would have emerged from the ocean. Um, and so it seems like the myth retells a geological history that's 10,000 more years longer than, than when the myth was recorded by Hesiod. Um, but but why not? I mean, people were there. People witnessed this thing happen, or generations of people witnessed this happen. Someone was there at the moment that bridge became an island, 
right? Someone, some person might have seen, there were fewer people around, but like some person <laughs> could have been present to watch the first trickle of water creep across the kind of col of a hill in order to form a new sea. Um, uh, and, and, and of course, they would have told stories about it. Yeah. And of course, those stories would come down to us one way or another in some strange echo tens of thousands of years later. Um, and to me, there's nothing particularly extraordinary about that. And you don't even have to believe in a kind of line of direct descent if you believe in the kind of endlessly fractal holographic nature of the universe that we were discussing earlier. That, of course, these patterns will recur, as you say. The, myth, the myths are the things that are true over and over again. And so you can find the echoes of them in all these stories, but as more and more of them pile up, the kind of the wonder and the certainty increase. Yeah, and and it speaks to how um, how intelligence is carried forward in time in ways that we have that we haven't that we don't necessarily or science doesn't necessarily know how to take seriously. But there it is. That's knowledge well, that's been yeah, carried. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's and, carried forth always in, in, in lived tradition and yeah. practice. I think is really important. I was talking to a friend earlier today who's um, engaged in a big uh, kind of archival project around the Cycladic Islands where he's going around collecting various... At the moment, he's working on a big ceramics project, meeting lots of kind of potters, people who've been making ceramics on the islands for generations, um, and telling their stories, collecting their materials, and trying to work out how to how to preserve this material. But it's the same old archival problem as ever, is there's no magic way of transmuting this into another medium that will survive forever. It will end up getting retold and retold over and over again, and it will get changed mm. in that process. Mm. And, you know, like someone else... 100 or 50 you know years time might look at the materials he's produced and kind of recreate that tradition but in some kind of new form and you just see this thing getting handed on and passed down and passed down over time um because it can only exist as living practice there's no like separating it off from the world as we've described uh, um i want to return just as we kind of draw to a close to to technology um you know you you, you mentioned before this this way in which the internet, um, actually, the creation of the internet helped us grasp grasped what is happening in the natural world. Um, you said it was a gift from the technological to the ecological. Um, you you've talked about how you you write about how um, you know one of the greatest misunderstandings of the twentieth century, which persists into the present, was that everything was ultimately a decision problem. And when computers came along, there was, you know, it was easy to fall into this idea that the universe is like a computer, the brain is like a computer, that we and plants and animals and bugs are like computers. Um, and, and you've also said that our contemporary networked computational technologies might yet be our fullest attempt since the development of language to draw ourselves closer to nature however carelessly and unconsciously. So talk me, talk me through that. <laughs> um, well, that's just because of my crazily optimistic belief that we <laughs> are being constantly brought closer to the world. And in, in that, I think I'm, you know, I'm talking about quite a few things in there, but in one case, I'm particularly talking about AI, mm -hmm. um, which is this, you know, this... I, I get AI is an overriding fascination, but I, I have it with quite a few of these technologies, which, you know, they, they go through this amazing process. I've done this before with things like self-driving cars or, you know, other, other new other new bits of tech, where there are things that, you know, suddenly in our lifetime are going from this is what life will be like in the year 3000 to like a boring everyday reality. 
like just like that, you know, just mm. sort of suddenly. And everyone's like, whoa, 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 what, that exists now? Mm. Um, and this is happening with AI, but in this really like boring, rubbish way where it's just stealing everyone's art and making bad cartoons. Um, but it's, but it's, it's here in, in some form. Um, uh, but, but, you know, my, my constant hope is that it can't just be that. It's, it's, it's more interesting than that. It has so much cultural weight and it has so much pull on us. The fact that it, there's this huge disparity between our fascination with it because, you know, we have this deep, deep cultural human fascination with AI and the incredible banality of its reality yeah. as put forward it's, by tech companies. It's reality as opposed to the things that keep getting promised that it will do for yeah, us one day. Exactly. Well, not just promise, but they really imagine, you know, mm. that we imagine something, unfortunately, mostly like ourselves, but that's, again, just the limits of our own imagination. Mm. But we're imagining something that will shake us to our core fundamentally. Right, right, right. right. Um, you know, and we are we are capable of imagining something that powerful. But what we're essentially imagining is is another intelligence, um, and that that's mm-hmm. to me what what you know I, I think is fundamental is that we're so bad at imagining non-human intelligence that we have to build this kind of vast mythology because that's kind of what it is <laughs> of AI of this of our own creation of some kind of Frankenstein weird science fiction conglomeration of of 20th century myths in order to imagine that something like other intelligence could exist at all. And then we're going to put all of our work into this. We're going to put all of the billions of dollars and we're going to put all of this press and we're going to put all this tech and science into making this thing real because we want it to exist so far so much. And the end result is that we are going to notice that non-human intelligence exists. Like that's for me is the is is the thing that happens at the end of that is that we 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 lose some kind of grip on our solipsism as being the only intelligent things around. Okay. And there's so much strangeness in that desire because it's somewhat sort of self-obliterating. Yeah. But 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 the fact that we want it so much tells me that we yearn towards not being this, you know, incredibly remote, the smart thing, know, special the smartest thing. kids in the like, room. You know, uh-huh. but we really, we, we understand that there's something wrong with that belief. Uh-huh. And that, you know, that, that, um, that it doesn't match reality. And that's why something like AI has to exist. Because, because there's something so at odds with our being in the world that we could be so singular and strange. That's maybe one way of understanding it. It's um, just it's just scary to think how how much wreckage there might be <laughs> along that learning path. Well, yeah, I mean, history isn't exactly promising on, on that regard, is yeah. it? Uh, which is why I'm not, I'm not advocating that path at all. But mm-hmm. I would point out that it is the one that we're on. Um, I want to say that you're, you gave me uh, hope in about, so this, I feel like one of the great puzzles of, of this century is that um, we're faced with these existential, interconnected, global challenges, massively complex, that require us to transcend either or thinking as a matter of survival and actually to grapple with complexity at a species level. And and we have landed ourselves on these technological platforms and with technological tools that are based on binary code, which doesn't make sense. And you helped me see that it it didn't have to be this way, and it doesn't have to be this way, that there's evolution possible in that too. Yeah, I mean, there's many, many other ways we could be building our technologies. Um, though I, I don't think they're necessarily the 
you know, the place that we should be putting all our effort. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the work that I do in the book to, to point out those alternatives is just to say, like, there is nothing given about the situation that we find ourselves in, because that's always worth restating, even when it comes to like the design of quite complex computational technologies. There's an almost infinite number of other ways they could be have been built, which means there's also an infinite number of ways, other ways that the world could be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's always a really, really important thing to mind because we, we forget that all too often. Um, I, I think the work that needs to be done if we're getting into that territory yeah. um, is, you know, is about reconstructing those technologies to some extent. Um, but it is also about a much, much broader engagement with, you know, the, what we, let me rephrase that, what I think we learn from that story of why we've designed technologies the way that we have, why particularly ones of triumph, is that we are limited in our imagination of, 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 of ourselves and of the world that surrounds us. Um, but we have started to puncture that um, mm-hmm. by starting to acknowledge uh, the, the other forms of life, intelligence, and much more than intelligence that surround us. And for me, the, the, the next phase of whatever it is we need to be doing is, is quite obviously um, learning, but also listening to all those forms of life that surround us and seeing a little bit, paying a bit more attention to what their answers to how to live in this world are, rather than trying to construct ever more kind of complex technologies on our own behalf that have, you know, that exclude them and pay no attention to them. And and I mean, you do, you tell really, really uh, uh, amazing stories of all kinds of experimental things that are happening and people coming at this in different ways. I, I will say that something for me, I, I'm such a believer in that the origins of anything uh, are 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 somewhat deterministic um that they that they ripple through um mm-hmm. everything that comes next and i was so excited in your book to read about that 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 leibniz gottfried leibniz this polymath had and also a very religious person had a role in the development of binary numbers mm-hmm. um and that so in, so that rap, so that and that for him rather than this binary being about and the ultimate either or, um, that the purity of the one and the zero were symbolic of the Christian idea of creation ex nihilo, out of nothing something. In other words, the one and the zero were symbolic of emergence. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Though, which, to be clear, a very kind of traditional uh, Christian fundamentalist conservative view of what that emergence meant but yes i mean he was contrasting both the materialism of his time but also the kind of free scientific thinking so i'm I'm, yeah complex but yeah yeah but but it's more interesting than just ones and zeros exactly and and like there it is at least there's this little chink of light well also the the, the, the dna of the binary and then he worked with the i ching right yeah yeah i mean tell Um, that's so fascinating can you talk a little bit about that yeah no i mean that 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 that, um you know he was he he was trying to shore up um his kind of um the this 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 idea he had of ones and zeros being emblematic of creation ex nihilo of the kind of power of creation and ultimately of God, and he was looking for um, examples of it in other um, ancient traditions, uh, i.e., so that he could show it came not just out of his own kind of study, but mm-hmm. that it was like present within the history of humanity more broadly. And he had a friend who was a Jesuit uh, missionary to uh, the. Uh, 
17th century, 17th century, yes, Chinese court, uh, who sent him back some of the first images of the I Ching ever seen in the West. Uh, this kind of ancient system of divination, that of course, is all based on chance, is all based on the kind of the, the, the whim of the environment and the world and the universe kind of speaking through this system of numbers. And he, and he, um, he explicitly uses the I Ching um, as kind of one of the, his own proofs of the validity of binary numbers and thus support for his idea of uh, kind of emergence and ex nihilo creation in binary code. Mm-hmm. So all, all of this non-deterministic, um, all of this um, uh, kind of chance randomness that for me is very much associated with the, the kind of froth and bubble of the, of the living world is, is, lies behind the, the kind of very cold rationalism of numbers as we understand them today. Yeah. And, and, and again, is part of this reason why I, I sort of insist that despite all appearances uh, and despite all indications to the contrary, like technology is constantly trying to draw attention back to the world because it is part of the world. Mm-hmm. And it is only us that make that separation and distinction mm-hmm. that thinks that, that that high technology, the things that we make, are somehow our own creations rather than being, you know, part of uh, the vast panoply of becoming, the, the, the everything being equally evolved. Um, as we said earlier, that, you know, that computers and satellites and binary numbers are as much part of that ongoing evolution as kind of butterflies and birds. Right. Um, that they're all kind of springing from the same source and this, there's, no, there's no meaningful separation between any of them. Um, you know, something I ended up doing um, after I was reading you and also just, you know, other conversations I've, I've been having in these years and things I've been reading and... Um, I had a I had a conversation an interview for this show right back in the middle of the year with a um, uh, what is what does she call herself anyway really about emergence and fractals and coming at this from other directions and um, I I I one one way I think about this whole complex of what we're learning is that we are actually we're learning in whole new ways about the deep nature of vitality. Um, as it is manifest in the fullness of you know the nat- the world the natural world, uh, maybe even the vitality of of our technologies, um, and I started to just make this list of language um, that that is associated with vitality in these different spheres, and a lot of these words were in your book also, um, and just thinking about and I've been st- kind of uh, giving this thought experiment like what. If if we took this in as the nature of vitality, um, it's not the way we've created our societies or our institutions. Um, uh, how how would the how would this understanding of vitality change how we organize or partner or collaborate or build? Um, so, um, you know, it's entanglement, reciprocity, tributaries, dying, composting, regeneration, mutation, underground life support, nutrient cycling and recycling. Uh, mutuality, absorption, detoxification, photosynthesis, biodiversity, germination, flowering, efflorescence, recombination, endosymbiosis. Um, I, I guess I just wanted to share that with you and wonder. Yeah, no, it's a good list. It's a good list. It, it's, it feels fecund. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of life bursting forth there, isn't there? Yeah. Um, uh, and it's it, you know it really speaks to this kind of. Um, a, 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 a bursting and a kind of hybridity is what I hear in those words. I hear something that is sort of not really containable within the the structures that we 
that we tend to operate in. Um, you know, I, th I think particularly of, um, you know, in, in my sphere, I spend a lot of time thinking about the nature of uh, the art gallery and the way in which so much of the um, uh, institutional spaces in which we're supposed to imagine things are cut off from the living and growing world around mm -hmm. us. Um, mm -hmm. The way that we, you know, just the way most of us live within these kind of sterile boxes that can disconnect us from that living world and the same places are in which we do our kind of politics. Yeah, or just um, the way it's always been done, the, what we yeah. think. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, but the way that's mirrored in, the, you know, architecture and the, mm -hmm. the like exclusion of, of processes of change and becoming. That, that, as you say, that those are, they are, they are inherently always these deeply kind of conservative processes that um, that try to move towards a place of stasis, uh, which is you know, and um, uh, which is the place of death, <laughs> which is which is yeah. the kind of cold vacuum, yeah. uh, absolute zero in which nothing changes, uh, which is not where we live or can live. Um, and so, yeah, how we how we keep that 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 possibility of growth and space open um, in our in pretty much everything we do. Yeah. Uh, which is a broad call. I, but uh, yeah, I'm particularly thinking about it in the nature of decision making and processes and, and, and how we think about futures. Here, here's something else you wrote that felt to me kind of immediately transferable to, to how we live, right? It's, it's a question again. Um, and you're talking about, about understanding the intelligence, the life of, of the more than human world, of, um, um, of other, you know, all that is living around us. And you said, where we start to move forward is when we learn to ask questions which are less concerned with, are you like us, and more interested in, what is it like to be you? Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a reflection on, on the way in which we've always judged non-human beings, and indeed, you know, uh, other humans other quite, human beings we found ways to distinguish ourselves from yeah yeah um you know and if, uh we 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 only value that which is you know which is translatable into a, a quality that we recognize in ourselves um uh it's it's you know it's it's the way we structure things around kind of empathy and identification um rather than as i write in the book around practices of solidarity yeah. which recognize yeah. The value of other things without having to without having to identify with them as being like us um you know um uh there's been a you know that's basically how we've how we've always operated and it has limited our our perception awareness of the the vitality of other beings mm -hmm. uh, for as long as we have but um but other beings have not just have their own ways of, of doing things but also have a lot of the answers to questions that we find very difficult to frame of of how to live in this world, um, there's plenty of there's plenty of answers to those questions. Plenty of types of knowledge, plenty of ways of understanding the world that are held and uh, and practiced by non-humans. Uh, and uh, for me, I feel very strongly that the kind of key to our meaningful survival and our flourishing is to be found in 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 learning in learning those lessons and paying attention to them very closely. Yeah, and also there's this this phrase that you. You introduce again and again, and um, there's this quote by John Muir, when we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe, which is what you and I have been talking about since his lifetime. We're 
we know that with such such incredible detail. But as you say, again and again, we share a world, right? We share a world, and is is that is surely the ultimate thing that we that we know in our bodies. We must know in our bodies. We know it in our language and places, as we've talked about. Or somehow, we strangely, have to we have to learn, relearn. Yeah, we have to learn and we have to fight. Um, it's you know, it's a, it's not just a, it's not just something which we've forgotten. It's something that has been, um, like deliberately excluded. Mm-hmm. You know, and and and, um, uh, you know, so much of this is the separation that we experience from 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 the rest of the world is deliberate because it benefits others in certain ways. It benefits other forms of power in various ways. Um, and so it's really important, I think, to remember as well, as I say, that, yeah, this is a this is a process of kind of re-education along multiple levels, mm. uh, one of, of of making ourselves more aware, but of also, you know, thinking about how we how we take action and reframe so much of so much of the priorities of our culture um, uh, around around making better worlds. Yeah. How how is your sense? What is? I'm curious about your sense of time. And how that, what time is, and how it works, and why it matters, how that might have um, been affected by all of this work. Um, well, there's probably two things to that, and one of them is the thing that I've already mentioned about this awareness of how we all live within different times, um, like times of awareness, the different knowledges that we have, and how those knowledges are carried at kind of different rates across time. Um, but I also, I've, 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 for a very long time, I've, I think I've had this quite a um, uh, holographic idea of time itself, um, and I'll, I'll give two very different <laughs> mediated examples of that. Okay. The first is the experience I describe in the book of um, uh, of doing a little basic time lapse photography, which I found to be an incredibly powerful technique for just making myself aware of other lives mm. and of the vitality of the world. So what I did was I bought like a little cheap, you know, time lapse camera, something that you just basically set up and leave there, and it takes photos and made these like really terrible low quality time lapses of like plants in my garden and in my living room but incredibly powerful ones because these were plants that I lived with all the time and I knew um, but I'd never seen them mm. as clearly as I saw them when this little machine mediated between us mm. and transformed them from you know that, that, that translated between their time frame and mine in this incredibly powerful way mm. and it's, it's a really key point here that's always worth remaking which is that most of us have seen these kind of time lapses now um they become a bit of staple of kind of nature documentaries and stuff like this and that's great they're wonderful they're very beautiful but they do not have the same transformative effect that i'm talking about unless one makes them oneself um because it's one of these things that's embodied like if you just watch a time lapse on youtube or nature documentary you don't really know how long it took like there isn't right. the translation doesn't happen because it still only happens to you for those 30 seconds. When you make it yourself, you have the experience of the actual 24 hours that are compressed into those 30 seconds. Does that make sense? Yeah, and you're also and sharing you, you life embody, with that thing you've been yeah, photographing. Right, you, you really embody it and that's a yeah. totally different way of experiencing and understanding the world. Mm. Um, and the second experience, which I don't talk about so often, but I will because I think it matters, um, is the... Um, is, is, uh, psychedelically mediated experiences I've had yeah. um, with with various substances, um, that uh, one of the key effects of those is to give you different perspectives upon time. Um, that yeah. time changes yeah. radically when you're under the influence of uh, sometimes inorganic, but particularly, I think, plant-based 
substances that have these that again allow you this connection to another form of time yeah um and certain certain psychedelic substances are definitely creating a not perhaps not dissimilar connection to the one i'm talking about with time lapses they are giving you access to a different perception of time um and as we know from from physics and much of science like time is Time is not the single fungible thing. Yeah, of all of our perceptions that are completely so, flawed. Is, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So, of course. And so, of course, there's also ways of hacking it and exploring it mm-hmm. and thinking it differently and experiencing it in radically different ways. And, of course, once you start doing that, then then the whole flowering and uh, becoming becomes a whole different kind of plane of experience. And what about consciousness? And that might be connected. How How, how is your understanding of consciousness evolving? <laughs> Going deeper. Um, yeah. I actually, I mean, I, I, I was quite careful not to talk about consciousness in the book, mm-hmm. uh, and I mostly talk about intelligence, and those are two very different things. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm a great fan of of Alan Watts and and of similar schools of thought. Um, and I would I would simply say I I read a book recently called The Hidden Spring by a neuroscientist whose name oh God, I'm so bad at names I apologize. Um, um, He's a very famous cognitive neuroscientist who's you know, spent his lifetime partly trying to locate consciousness within a particular structure of the brain. And he sort of seems to claim to have found it, and I'm, I don't fully understand neuroscience, even though he's a very good writer, to fully understand what he's saying, but I know it makes absolutely no sense to me um, <laughs> that you could somehow locate consciousness within a particular physical structure when it is incredibly clear to me that consciousness is something that exists outside the physical universe that exists completely outside of everything that we perceive physically and is something that we partake in. Mm. And that as, mm-hmm. as, as Alan Watts says, like, um, you know, we come out of the world like, like waves out of water. We are just kind of, we, we exist as kind of standing waves of a much greater f- field of energy, the quantum field, as some would describe it. Um, we're just particular incarnations of that and our consciousness is the bit that still connects us to that underlying field. Mm. Um, and yeah, yeah, for me, it exists on a completely different plane to things like intelligence and embodiment that are fascinating but are, are not the same thing. You know, to that point about like, how, we, how we learn, um, it, it, we, it feels like, to me like so much that we learn and uh, that we learn collectively and that we're learning through all the things you and I have been talking about are things that, as we've been speaking, in many ways we knew forever, if if we only knew them on, in our bodies or we carried them around in words, um, and that, that's, what all, some, that's, that's what all the all the philosophical traditions and mystical traditions say, right? You know this already. It's just a process of remembering. Yeah, and that and that that we that we know things, and then and then the learn what feels like the learning is we know them for the first time with consciousness. Um, but I think that thinking about what you just said about that doesn't mean that. It's it's not a it's not necessarily a light going off inside us that it's us partaking in in something. Yeah, yeah. Which is which is also why you know ultimately feeds into you know an understanding that I'm just coming to or just remembering or whatever mm-hmm. it is that mm-hmm. that you know that that everything partakes in life. Mm-hmm. That everything, every everyone is every everything is everyone. Mm-hmm. As I think I wrote in the book that, that you know that that that. Um, Everything partakes in this consciousness, even if we're not like cognizant of it as a living thing. That that that, that life, that consciousness, is entirely universal. That is, that is the universe. Yeah, I mean, here's a line of yours. Uh, 
Every time we train our most sophisticated tools upon the central questions of our existence, who are we, where do we come from, where are we going, the answer comes back clearer, everyone and everywhere. <laughs> it's good, isn't it? I mean, I don't mean that about my rating, I mean, but that realization, like it's such, yeah. that, that's, to me, it's just so clear that, 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 is, that, that is what everything is constantly yelling at us. Um, you know, if we if we if we choose to pay attention, if we choose to hear it, mm-hmm. just 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 as we finish, um, how would you start now, having steeped in all of this and you know, kind of living these questions that you live? How would you start to answer this vast question of what it means to be human? Perhaps how has that evolved? How you might start to answer that question? Um. <sighs> I mean, what it what it is to be human is such a small thing I know. in this universe, right? Like, just try to be nice, um, be kind, babies, be kind, as Vonnegut wrote. Uh, that's that's the only guide, um, you know. Try to try to be good and try to try to do the least harm and and be kind. That's that's the only human bit. But what it means to be more than human that's 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 something else. That's the bigger question, I think, for me, is what it means to um, transcend that narrow frequency of being human in this time here to um to perhaps partake of something 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 far greater something more more than human um that is actually the the more deeper meaningful connection to everything around us oh james thank you so much this has been wonderful and i'm very grateful for your book and i'll keep telling everybody about it and um we'll we'll let you know when we're going to put this on the air i think it's going to be sometime in february Yes. Well, thank you so much for, for, for your interest. I'm, I'm really glad the book has been interesting and maybe useful to you. And yeah, that's just a joy to hear. And yeah. thank you for your thoughtful questions and thoughts. Mm. Thank you. I um, Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks for getting to the studio for us. It'll just make it's everything It's been an absolute better. pleasure. Yeah. Okay. No Bye-bye. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs>